How many of you had a storm at your house last night? Anybody? Our electricity went out. It was still out when we left this morning. So uh, I probably missed a couple places in shaving. Parted my hair in the wrong place, I think. Took a shower. And we had still had some hot water in the hot water heater. So, uh, but you know, the electricity was out. We have electric heater. So, uh, yeah. So it was very interesting. It was like the Three Stooges, you know. And there was only two of us in the house. Doctor Street, does Lynn have hot water? Well, not when I got finished. <laughs> I said, now who's the star of the show? The bigger <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to say that I actually did say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> it was very interesting. And I realized when I walked out of the house, I didn't have my glasses on. It was so dark in the house, we were using flashlights and a candle. I, I didn't know I didn't have my glasses on when I was in the house. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I, I had to look at something because the uh, garage door opener, which was electric, we had to disengage it. And I had to look at the uh, little tag on there to make sure I was doing what was right. And I couldn't see anything because my glasses were off. And I realized I didn't have my glasses on. And then without my glasses on, I had to go into the house and hunt for them. Which was not an easy thing. It is good to have Ben and Peggy back. I, I don't know if you, you heard, uh, whatever that guy's name is. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> That's just a senior moment. It happened when my hair started getting gray. Uh, Joe said, mentioned that Ben was president twice. So uh, he's the only person who's ever been president twice. And Ben, did you leave in the middle of your second term? Huh? I don't know. I know you didn't. I, was, I thought maybe you were impeached. I can't remember. <laughs> but anyway, let's take our Bibles and open to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we have a new set of grandparents in the class today. Yeah, Jerry and Betty Holcomb. You haven't seen those grandkids yet, have you? Tomorrow. Tomorrow? Okay. So that'll be really interesting. So that'll be a lot of fun for them. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 18. Okay. And this begins what's known as the fourth discourse in Matthew's gospel. Fourth time that Jesus gives a series of teachings. And... Whereas before, you see, he was up on the mountain, he, had an, he healed a boy, he had an encounter with uh, Peter and the fish. But now he goes into a series of teachings, and this is called the fourth discourse. It ends at chapter 19 and verse 1, and if you turn there, you'll see how that this discourse ends. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee, and he came to the region of Judea. So here we see the fourth discourse ends, and he starts heading down toward Jerusalem. So we're going to look at this fourth discourse. We're going to cover verses 1 through 14 today. And the key concept in these verses today is the concept of little child or little children. And you see that in verse 2. 
Does Jesus call a little child? Do you see that? Verse 3, he said, you must become as little children. Verse 4, this little child. Verse 5, one who receives a little child. Verse 10, take heed that you do not despise these little ones. Verse 14, the section ends the way it begins. Uh, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so that would be the theme of this. Now we're going to see that Jesus uses that phrase, little one, little child, little children, both literally and figuratively. Both literally and figuratively, or literally and metaphorically. Okay? So let's look at the first little section here, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to see that God's way of measuring success is different than ours. Okay? And what I'll do is I'll read those verses, and then I'll sort of unpack them for us. So let me just read verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as, a little, as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the timing of this event. Look what it says right at the beginning. At this time, at this juncture. This means that Jesus and the apostles, this connects this section to the previous section. They are still in Capernaum. Jesus and the disciples and the crowds surrounding them. Okay? And then comes a question. The disciples came in verse 1 to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now from the get-go, we realize these guys do not understand the kingdom of heaven. They're asking about greatness. They have a total misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is like. It's not like the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there was a, uh, a ranking system. Caesar was at the top. The senators came next. The equestrian class came next. The elites of society, and they had this tremendous hierarchy, and wherever you were, the higher you were, the greater you were. Who was the greatest in the kingdom of Rome and Roman Empire? Caesar. Who was next? The senators. And they think that the kingdom of God is like that. But the kingdom of God is not like that. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God based on birth based on privilege, based on wealth, no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. So now Jesus gives his answer. And look what he says in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. Jesus is going to answer through an object lesson. He brings a toddler, somebody who can hardly speak of an infant really, somebody who cannot yet speak, cannot yet walk, and he places them right in front of the disciples. And he said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means, under any circumstances, there's no exception to this, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Now isn't it interesting? They ask him, in verse 1, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus talks about the requirements of just getting in the kingdom of God. They want to know who's the greatest. And Jesus says, how do you get in? Now, how do you get into this kingdom of God? What does he say you have to do? You have to do one thing. Now, there are two words here, but they make up two sides of one coin. Okay? They constitute one action. Okay? We're going to look at each one of those words. First of all, he's saying, don't worry about who's the greatest. You know what you need to worry about? You need to worry about getting in. These are the apostles. Don't think just because they're apostles they're going to make it into the kingdom of God. I know one for sure that didn't make it in. Who was that? Oh yeah, he wanted to rub shoulders with the big guys, remember? He wanted to be somebody important. So look, Jesus says, first word, you must be converted. It means you must turn around. You must make an about face. Uh, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to head in the, in the right direction. Uh, what must you turn toward? What does he say there? You must be converted as little children. See? You must turn around. You're heading in the wrong direction. You're thinking about status. You're thinking about who's great. You're thinking about what you're going to do. And you know, you actually you're heading in the wrong direction. You need to be heading in that direction. So the next word is become. You need to become like little children. What does that mean? Become like little children. Well, little children in the Roman Empire had no status. They were nobodies. They had no power. No ability to do anything. No resources of their own. They were considered property. They were marginal. They could be tossed aside. They couldn't even take care of themselves. They couldn't provide for themselves and they couldn't protect themselves. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's absolutely helpless. They want to be great, and what does he say you have to be? A person that's totally vulnerable, who has to depend upon someone else because little children have to depend upon their parents to eat, to have their diapers changed, to be protected by dogs, the elements, whatever it is. They are totally helpless, and therefore they must trust their parents to take care of them. And Jesus says, hey, you're talking about being great. Let me tell you what you have to do to get into the kingdom of God. You have to become like little children. And uh, that's the direction that we must be going in. And we think, hey, I want to be this. I want to have that position. I want to meet with that person. I want to... But we're heading in the wrong direction. We might think that we're somebody important. We are actually maybe missing the kingdom of God altogether. Because that's not how the kingdom of God works. So we need to stop being status conscious. We need to stop being self-sufficient, and we need to become more like children. Now notice it takes an effort. Did you see that? You need to be converted. You need to turn around. You need to become. This involves action. 
It's a conscious act. When you have a choice to reach a certain status in the kingdom, we're not talking about in society, but in the kingdom, you want to be listened to, you want to be heard, you really care what people think about you, you're heading in the wrong direction, you need to turn and become like children. This takes an effort. And then there's a therefore. Based on that truth, look what Jesus says in verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, a nobody, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, the requirement to enter the kingdom and the requirement to be the greatest in the kingdom are exactly the same. It's amazing, isn't it? The requirement to get into the kingdom and the requirement to be great in the kingdom are exactly the same requirements. So you get in the kingdom by being like a little child, just trusting, being humble, not thinking more of yourself than you ought. And then when you're in the kingdom, you live that way. That's what God considers greatness. Uh, it is a reverse kingdom of the Roman Empire. It's a reverse kingdom of the way the world thinks. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be less. If you want to be important in the kingdom, you have to be nothing. It's a reverse. If you want to be rich in the kingdom, you have to be poor. It's this total upside-down kingdom. And that's how we enter the kingdom, and that's how we are great in the kingdom. So they want to be great in the kingdom... And they're in danger of not even getting into the kingdom. How about us? See, when I see a passage like this, I don't think of them. I think of me. Paul was so concerned that he might miss out on the kingdom of God. It's hard to believe that he says that. He said, I'm afraid that I'll be you know, set aside. I won't even make it. And having told others the truth... Not making it in myself. We should be taking these kinds of passages to heart. Now, what does it look like to be humble? Like a little child. Well, look at verse 5. Whoever receives, look at this, whoever receives one little child like this, in my name, receives me. Whoever receives, and that word receives means welcome. Now we have to ask the question at this point, is Jesus now still talking about a little child, or is he now referring to uh, somebody who's just not important? In other words, somebody who has no status. Is he talking literally about a little child, or is he talking like about a babe in Christ? And we're going to have to decide what he's talking about here. But notice, you have to welcome Somebody with no status. And when you do that, and you do it in the name of Jesus, know what it says in verse 5? Then you welcome Him. So how do we respond to the weak? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. How do we respond to those people who are on the margins? Uh, when they come into our Sunday school class, uh, do, we, do we welcome them and uh, bring them into our circle? And make them feel at home? Or do we say, see what they look like? See how 
dirty they are. Look at their hair. Look what they're wearing. If we receive those people, we welcome them, and we say, hey, it's good to have you in the name of Jesus. Welcome. We are welcoming Christ. If we shun those people, we are shunning Christ. So guess what you have to do to be a humble person is you have to welcome everybody. You can't say, oh, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. Oh, but see, that person might have some sort of disease. <clears throat> I remember one time that I, uh, and I'm going to give you an example of this, of how I did what, what happened. Uh, AIDS was just going around, just starting. And this guy visited the church. It was obvious that this guy was homosexual. And I would, he was brought into the church that I was pastoring. Wasn't a large church. And one of my members brought him up and said, I want you to meet so-and-so. And I shook, shook his hand and said, how are you doing? You know? But the whole time, guess what I was thinking? This is before we understood AIDS. So after this, I welcomed the guy and said, hi, I hope you had, you know, go get a cup of coffee or whatever. Uh, I leave the auditorium and my friend came up to me after the service and said, did you go to the men's room and wash your hands? And guess what I was doing? I was in the men's room washing my hands. I mean, that's a condemnation. See, I was looking at this person as somebody who was lesser than I am, not as valuable in the sight of God as I was, hoping that he wouldn't come back the next week. I wasn't welcoming him in the name of Jesus. Did I, couldn't I think God did? Why couldn't I just be like a child? Would a, if, a little, if the guy came up and said hi to a little child, would they say, who, who was that guy? A little child would have just played with him, welcomed him, but that's not how I was. And so do we welcome people on the margins? Or do they seem to be people that are below us and therefore we, we really can't be bothered with them? That's the arrogant attitude that many people have. We have to be able to welcome people that are the weak and the vulnerable in our society. And let me tell you something. When you do that, the Spirit of Christ is there. If you really want to build a great church, welcome people. In the name of Jesus. Not just welcome them, you welcome them in the name of Jesus. And when you do that, you welcome Jesus. Remember Jesus said, look, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, when I was hungry, remember all that? They said, Lord, when do we... Well, when you did it to the least. What was that? To the what? The least of these. You did it to what? Me. When you welcome those on the margins you and the nobodies, you're welcoming Christ. Does that make sense? That's what we need to be doing as a Sunday school class. Now look negatively in verse 6. But, this is by contrast, whosoever causes one of these little ones, one of these people on the margins, people who are seeking Christ, maybe even babes in Christ, maybe they joined the church, they made some sort of commitment, they don't understand it, whatever. But whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. See, now he identifies them as followers of some sort. Whoever causes them to sin, more literally, to stumble. 
what it, the word sin in this case means. But whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hanged around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, what kind of a sin is he talking about? He's not talking about us lying or us cheating. He's not talking about those kinds of personal sins. He's causing, saying, if we would cause one of these little ones, one of these babes, one of these innocent ones, to stumble. Uh, how do we do that? How would we cause a person, in other words, they come into your midst, and instead of welcoming them, which was the previous verse, because this is a but, this is a contrast, you cause them to stumble. How would we cause them to stumble? Maybe it's by not welcoming them, right? Maybe it's by giving preference to the rich. Maybe it's uh, by, a, by not paying attention to them, not helping them in their newfound walk with Christ, causing them to fend for themselves. Would you allow a baby to fend for itself? Why would you allow a new convert to fend for itself? All you're doing is causing them to stumble. If you say to the baby, get up and walk. Does it get up and walk? No, you need to help it. So guess what? If you don't help it, what does it do? It stumbles. It falls. Because you're not paying attention to it. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not involved in discipleship. And when we do these things, babies become babes in Christ. Those who believe in Him, he says, become discouraged. They leave the church. They depart from the faith. They go back into the world because their innocence has been destroyed. And they say, if that's Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Boy, this is a real hard lesson. We need to make sure that we don't cause someone to lose their faith because we've excluded them from our group. Because they're outsiders. I've seen people come into this class they just haven't bonded in the class. They've sat on the outside edges of the class. You know who they are. And guess what? We don't even care. We look at them, who that is. Maybe I should go talk to them, but we don't. And guess what? One day they just don't show up anymore. Because we haven't really gotten involved to get to know them. We haven't invited them out to lunch with the lunch group or individually. And so they said, man, is this, maybe these are somebody, we don't even know who they are. People on the margins, literally on the margin of the room, maybe in the margins of society, and we just don't go into them. Now notice what he says in verse 6. He says that this is a great sin. He says it would be better for that person who offends another, causes that seeker to stumble, it would be better for him that if a millstone, that's a 2,000 pound grinding stone, were hung around his neck and then he was tossed into the sea like Jimmy Hoffa and drowned into the depths of the sea. Uh, never to be heard from again. There's no escape from this. You are sealing your fate. Hey, guess what? You're not only not great in the kingdom, you haven't even entered the kingdom. You are 
thrown into the depths of the sea, never to be heard from again. Better than what? Look, it would be better for him, look, look what it says there. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the sea. Better for him than what? If it's better, if having a millstone thrown around your neck is better than something, what's it better than? Facing the judgment of God. And guess what the person who does this faces? He faces the judgment of God. You're not getting the millstone. You're getting the harshest punishment. You are actually going to face the judgment of God. And so Jesus pronounces the judgment. Look what he says in verse 7. Whoa. <laughs> Look at that. Woe to the world because of offenses. The world is judged because it's always trying to cause new believers to stumble. Come on back. Come on back to the crowd. Come on back. Ah, you don't want to be with us, man. Come on back. Woe to the world. The world's going to be judged is the way it treats new believers and those who are seekers. Verse 7. For offenses must come. It's going to happen. The world's going to try to cause people to stumble. There'll be professors at universities and colleges that are going to cause, try to cause new freshman Christians to stumble and depart from the faith, saying, you're crazy following that fundamentalism religion of yours. It's going to happen. And the world's going to be judged for it. Now that would, we'd say amen to that, won't we? We'll say amen to the next part, in verse 7. But woe, and I might say double woe, to that man by whom the offense comes. Yes, the world's going to be judged in a general way. The nations are going to be passed, going to pass from the scene, but there's going to be an individual judgment for the person. It's going to be, does he say worse? He doesn't say worse, but it's, but woe, his emphasis is like, but there's a worse woe to that person, that man, by whom the offense comes. Whoever causes a little one to stumble is going to face the judgment. So here's the bottom line. <clears throat> If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame and maimed rather than having two hands and two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. Now, when he says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, he's not switching the subject. <clears throat> he's not just talking about you lying or you cheating. So he's talking about you sinning in causing someone else to stumble the same subject. It's why you'll see little children mentioned again at the end of this whole passage. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better, there's the better again, for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two high eyes and be cast into hell. Now, uh, what really strikes me it is the connection between verses 8 and 9 and verse 3. See. You'll see something. There's a common denominator there. 
in verse 3, he says, if you're not converted to become like little children, you will by no wise, what? Enter. You see that word? Enter the kingdom of God. Now look at 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cast it off, because it's better for you to what? Enter into life. You see that? Enter into life. And again, you see in verse 9, that same phrase, enter into life. So to enter into life and enter into the kingdom are the same thing. And these people, the apostles, are being warned. See? They're being warned. And that's why he says in verse 10, look at this, take heed, you see that? Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. That's the sin. The sin is how you're treating people. Not that you lied, you did all these little dinky sins that we talk about. This is talking about relationships. So look what he says. Take heed. Be warned. Be on guard. That you do not despise these little ones. In this case, the pronoun you is plural. So he says, make sure that you all don't despise little ones. He's speaking not only to the apostles, but uh, I would imagine that Matthew's audience reading this many years later takes it to heart that Jesus is speaking to them, and guess he's speaking to us as well. We need to make sure that we do not despise the little ones. Now notice, causing them to stumble, and now what are we doing? We're showing them what? Contempt. It's one thing to just sort of keep them on the margins and not welcome them. <laughs> this takes it even a step further. This is showing them contempt. See? Now why would he have to warn them? Why does he say take heed or be on guard or be warned? Why do you think he would have to say that? I guess we're in danger of doing it or he wouldn't have to give us a warning. It's a possibility. If we weren't in danger of despising the people on the margins, he'd say, hey, don't worry about this. You do real good in this area. But he doesn't say that, does he? He knows us. And he says, we need to be warned that we do not cause the little ones to stumble, number one. And number two, we do not show them contempt. Why? Look what he said. Here's the reason. Right in the middle of verse 10. Four. Because. Here's why you need to make sure you do not despise the little one. That you don't show them contempt. For I say to you that in heaven there are angels. Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Reason number one. The angels are on their side. Now, what kind of angels are these? <laughs> Boy, that's a hard one. I'm not sure I can answer that. Does it mean that they've got guardian angels? Possibly. We know that these angels, it says, see the face of the Father who's in heaven. These are angels that face God. These are called angels of the face. This is what the Jewish rabbis called them. Angels of the face. Or angels of the presence. Those who stand in the presence of God. And all we can figure out is they're standing in the presence of God just waiting for an order to come right down here and zap somebody. And guess who they're going to zap? It's going to be you. You despise one of the little ones. Or 
They see what we're doing down here, and they go and they face God and they give Him a report, which spells judgment for us, because that God knows what we're doing. We're not getting away with it. So reason number one is because of these angels, we better not do it, which spells judgment because it all links back to eight and nine about this judgment to come. There's a second reason, which is found in verse eleven. Four. Don't do it because the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Now some translations don't have that verse in there. But it's still the truth. The Son of Man comes to save those that are lost. When you cause a person to stumble, you cause a person to abandon Christ and the faith. You oppose the mission of Christ. Because what's Christ come to do? He's come to what? Seek and to save. And guess what you're doing? Pushing them away. Okay? Causing them to leave. You're going diametrically opposed to the purpose of Jesus Christ and His entire mission. So, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't drive people away. And then Jesus asked a rhetorical question. He said, well, what do you think? What do you think? And here's the question. If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and he goes to the mountains and seeks after uh, the one that's straying? Isn't that what a man does? And they all said, yes, that's what he does. And that's what Christ does. He comes to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But guess what we're doing? If we follow that passage, we're pushing them away. We're doing just the opposite. So we're outside of God's will when we do this. When we don't welcome people in the name of Christ. God does it and so should we. And you see example after example where God will send a person to reach another person. And they have to go to extremes to reach that person. Like Philip, when he goes to the Ethiopian. Remember that? He goes to Ethiopia and he, he, uh, he has to go out to the Gaza Strip. He has to go out to the desert. And the Ethiopian is riding in a chariot and says, run up and catch up with him. That's the extent that we, that's the extent that Christ goes to reach somebody. That's the extent that we should be going and we shouldn't be pushing them away. And then he says in verse 13, if he should find it, if that shepherd finds it, assuredly I say to you, guess what he does? He rejoices more over the lost sheep than over the ninety and nine that did not go astray. This is the uh, story of the prodigal son all over again. The son returns and the father's happy. He throws a party and the other son's very jealous. Well, you can throw a party for me so you didn't go astray. I've been, you've been living off of me and been close to me all this time. We're just, hey, you should be happy if your brother's saved. That which is lost has been found. And uh, the weak need our help because they're in danger of departing from the faith and going back into the world. Paul says, Demas has forsaken me. Demas was one of his missionary traveling companions. He says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. That world drew Demas back. Fortunately, Paul didn't drive him back, but the world drew him back. 
And that's the tendency of a new believer who just joins the church or he makes some sort of initial profession of faith. Whether they're real believers or not, we don't know. But they need to be discipled immediately. They need to be uh, loved upon immediately. They need to be embraced immediately. If we don't do that and we leave them on the margins, the chances are that they are going to leave. And when we do that, there's great joy in seeing them grow in Christ and becoming full-fledged believers. And then Jesus finally says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven. Even so. So he's saying this is, this is the lesson. In light of this, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we need to make sure that we're not arrogant that we're not concerned about how great we are. Lord, who's going to be the great? You know, you really need to be concerned more about just getting in. And what you need to do is you need to welcome them. You need to make sure that you don't drive them away. You make sure that you go after those that are wandering, like the prodigal son, like the Ethiopian eunuch, like Philip went after them. Otherwise, you will be opposed to the will of God. It's not God's will that any should perish. And we let people walk out these doors and walk out our church and people in our neighborhoods lost, then uh, we stand opposed to God's will. So we need to take an inventory. We need to take responsibility. Uh, we need to make an effort. It takes an effort. This doesn't have auto, all, happen automatically. And we need to disciple and welcome new believers. If we don't, we need to realize that one day, hey, these things that he describes in 8 and 9 will be far more better than facing the judgment of God. Uh, Peter says, <clears throat> yeah, but how about these people are so obnoxious and they sin and they do wrong things? How many times are we supposed to forgive them before we kick them out? Seven? How many times does the baby have to mess his diaper before we kick him out of the house and then you know more part of our family? Seven times? Nah. Seven. Seventy times so. So you can come up with reasons why you should throw them out, why you should reject them, why you should despise them and contempt them. You be contempt of them. But Jesus says, no. You need to love them uh, without reserve. And that's what the next discourse is on the issue of a sinning brother. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you that we have a passage here that uh, cuts uh, to the heart. Because when we see it for what it is, uh, we see our own shortcomings. Help us to realize, Lord, that we become great in your kingdom by becoming humble. We become more by becoming less. Help us not to think more of ourselves than, our, than we ought, but to say how great thou art. Help us to do your bidding and your will. And we'll discover the joy of what it's like to wrap our arms around the person on the margins and bring them into the family of God. Help us to do it. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>
Lord, and 